0: hi i'm boxing uh ring historian and and writer author lou eisen this is ring talk. and today we're going to talk about the mob's influence in boxing and i believe the photo that came up was uh on the left uh, blinky palermo a vile scumbag and frankie carbo who who was one of the charter members of murder incorporated who killed dozens and dozens of men what these two men had in common with only madden who was the first major mobster to run boxing on a national uh scale to take it over was that uh, they were psychopaths they were entirely without empathy or morals and as uh, bud shilbrick said to me on the set of cinderella man they enjoyed putting a bullet in a man's head just like another guy would sit there he said for frankie he said like another guy would enjoy a good cuban cigar while walking his dog he also said for frankie carbo killing to him he said mattered as much as he said you know when you're reading your morning paper and you're having eggs for breakfast and as you're eating and you spill a bit of eggs on the paper you wipe it off but you don't give a damn he said that's how frankie felt about killing didn't care just go kill a person Two, three, four then turn around say to the other mobsters yeah let's go for a coffee and a danish and that was it didn't bother them didn't talk about it It it's just business now with uh mob control boxing still goes on and organized crime and boxing have been together for over 300 years uh first fights that we believe were fixed happened in britain in the mid to late 1700s uh in my upcoming book um blunders blood feuds and bad decisions boxing's greatest controversies um i have a fight that took place in 1780 i believe between peter cochran and billy darts and they were they were both paid uh billy darts was paid extra to go down in the first round and we can pretty well say he did that stuff like that was common hard to prove but my friend boxing historian, the premier uh, boxing historian in the world and bare knuckle boxing historian for Britain, Tony G said to me that, and showed that he had contemporary reports where Billy darts was paid by gamblers to an extra hundred pounds, which was a lot in the 1780s to go down. And there was no specific time, but he went down within a minute or two of the first round. And this wasn't, a prize fight like you see today. This was way up on a stage, and they didn't have gloves. And the other guy put him in a headlock and rammed his head into the turnbuckle. And you could do all sorts of things like that back then. And and he won. And it didn't come out till later on. And of course, who benefited as always the gamblers. The mobsters benefited, but the fighters didn't because uh, they got paid for their malfeasance. But no one wanted to, you know, book them again to fight. Uh, they did find a couple of fights but you know for next to nothing so the way we know fixed fights today and mob control of course that started in 1921. now three things came together all at once to create this perfect storm to allow the mafia to move in and control boxing actually four things first of all boxing had no central body and it doesn't today it'd be hard to take over the NBA. Or Major League Baseball or the NHL, because to take them over, um, you 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 need to have disparate groups. If you have one central body, it's hard to just control that one central body. Now they did it in baseball. Arnold Rothstein fixed the 1919 World Series, and I was thinking about this last night. So he fixes the World Series. Now you're thinking, how could a mobster go and say, "Okay, you guys"? you know you're the best and the White Sox were the best baseball team and this relates to boxing by 30 games 30 games and they had Shoeless Joe Jackson on the team the great pitcher Eddie Cicotte. so why would they throw World Series there's no reason to you know you're going to make extra money except you weren't they had a, a parsimonious very stingy cheap thieving line owner in Charles Comiskey so Comiskey forced them to pay for cleaning their own uniforms after games they refused they wore dirty stinky uniforms until he said he would pay and then eventually he took it out of their paychecks so here's one of the main reasons why the white Sox, and this relates i'll relate this to boxing in a minute uh through the world series eddie cicati their pitcher was going to get a ten thousand dollar bonus if he won 30 games he won 29 games and after he won 29 games he had 15 more starts. This was the beginning of August, from the beginning of August and into September. Comiskey sat him down for all 15 starts. So at the end of the season, he goes into the office, and Eddie Ciccati says, listen, I own. I, you should give me that money, but you didn't win 30 games. Right. I won 29, but I had 15 starts. I would have won at least one of them, and that would have given me the bonus. But you didn't win one of them because you didn't play them. Right, because you didn't let me and by treating his players like that you know he would say to a player if you get 20 home runs i'll give it ten thousand dollar bonus and then he would change to two to a three on the contract he could see that he did it i said 30. now i have the original contract it's 20 here you typed this up right well that was a mistake it's now 30 so you don't get the money and doing this to all the players who were the best players in the league in all of baseball they had enough so the gamblers knew this and Arnold Rothstein went and said, "Listen, I'm going to give you 150, 200 grand to split between the nine of you, and you'll get 10, 15, 20 grand each, and you'll throw the World Series." And Cincinnati was a huge underdog, and that's how the mom makes their money—they'll bet on the underdog. And so, you know, before the first game, here's here's each guy's supposed to get 10 grand. You know, here's 70 grand. He takes the money and seven players get 10 grand shoeless joe took the money and and he gets they all get the money but there's still a couple more players plus bench players that didn't get the money and so that was just the first payment they are supposed to get more payments payments never came and when the players complained the mobsters said that's it that's all you're getting now shut up and throw the games and the white sox said no we're not going to do that you you reneged not realizing that Rothstein had Mayor Lansky, Lucky Luciano, Frank Costello, all these vicious killers on his payroll. So what what the White Sox did was they win three games, two or three games in a row. The mobsters are like, well, we're going to lose all this money now. So they met with several of the pitchers and they brought them into a room at gunpoint sat him down and said to eddie cicati and the other pictures they said hey how you doing your wife uh mary very nice lady in fact i got some pictures this is a picture of her at the store picture of her walking your lovely daughter lucy to school it's a picture of her with your son going to the corner store to get an ice cream here's a picture in other words you do what i say or i can kill your whole family and in the final couple games the mobsters had Their muscles sit with the families to let the pitchers know and the players know you're going to do it our way. You're going to die. That's what happened in boxing. Or your family would die. This is what they did to guys. You're going to go down in this round. And that's the way it is. The mob never made idle threats. And the interesting thing about the mob, I was told by my friend Marvin Elkin, is they didn't know how to deal with people that were reluctant to do business with them or didn't want to go along with them. And Marvin said, it's like talking to your dog. And your dog goes, huh? Or trying to show your dog another dog on TV. Look, there's a dog like you on TV. And dog goes, what? What? And he said, that's what the way the mob was. So you're like, what do you mean no? No one ever says no. People get killed when they say no. Because with the mob, they're not negotiating. They're not asking. They're saying this is what's going to happen. And you're going to do it this way. And if you don't, I'm, I'll, I'll kill you and and so that's what happened so the the, the thing here's what happened to create the perfect storm first of all the united states congress did the stupidest thing they've ever done they they instituted the volstead act they passed the legislation for that and then came prohibition they tried to do something that you can't do which is legislate morality it's not possible and and that The mobsters understood that because the mobsters had virtually no morals at all. So prohibition comes in and now the mob is supplying through bootlegging liquor to every restaurant, every household, everywhere across the country. And Meyer Lansky said the mob then became the biggest employer of chartered accountants. And the reason for that is they thought they would make one or two million maybe through prohibition, but now they're making hundreds of millions of dollars. That's what they're making. And it's more money than they can possibly fathom and they need to launder it. March 23rd, 1920, the Walker Law. Mayor James J. Walker, who was then a a, um, Senator in state legislature in New York, sponsored a bill to to legalize boxing uh, on behalf of Al Smith, the governor, and Tammany Hall. And it worked got through so now boxing's legal no more newspaper decisions now you can have 15 round fights or you can have 12 round fights uh, and create the new york state athletic commission everyone has to have a license you're a bucket boy you need a license you're a manager you're a boxer you're a cup man promoter everyone needs to be licensed but most of the people working in it being mobsters didn't get a license and a lot of people on the commission were paid off and there was a rule, New York State law saying if you're a felon, you can't get a license from the New York State Athletic Commission. But that, that rule, they only applied it uh sparingly over the next 60, 70, 80 years, unless the media got on it, in which case they had no choice but to act. And sometimes even in that case, they didn't. So you have the Walker law makes boxing legal. You have prohibition, gives the mob the muscle. Now boxing's legal, so they don't have to worry about that. Now they got the the money from Prohibition, and and they have the muscle. And the other thing, of course, was the Dempsey-Carpanché fight. Now, before in 1921, before the Dempsey-Carpanché fight, right up until Jess Willard, let's say, guys, you know, Tommy Burns, when he fought Jack Johnson in 1908, got 30 grand. That was a lot of money back then. And he asked for that because, and he was right to do so, because Johnson was the best heavyweight around. If I'm taking the biggest risk against the best guy, I deserve the most money. He didn't think anyone would ask or would pay him the 30 grand, but they did. So he loses to Johnson. The point about the 30 grand for the mob, thats small potatoes, to take a piece of that, it's going to cost him more in manpower to steal the money than the amount of the money they're actually stealing. It's not worth it to them. But then, when Dempsey comes in, and you start seeing these million-dollar gates. Now, with Carponche, the gate was one million seven hundred and eighty-nine thousand. But when you add in all the concessions and all the drinks sold and the publicity and all that, it's well over two million, almost three million. At that point, the mob's interested. That's the kind of money we like. We can use that. And so, the problem at that point is you have the manager or the promoter excuse me Tex rickard he wants to put on this fight and he's got to pay the fighters up front fighters aren't gonna still in canadian boxing a lot of times although they're supposed to pay up front what they do here in canada is we'll pay you off the gate receipts which is that's just not professional and it never works you have to have the money up front so Dempsey's the champion. He's going to get upwards of a million bucks, you know, eight, nine hundred grand. Carpanchi's going to get a couple hundred grand, but they want it up front. Plus, they need the money for, uh, uh, money for uh, extra money for training camps. And Rickard had a problem. He had so many ticket sales, he didn't have a stadium big enough. He had to build one. And who had the disposable income then to build? Well, the mob. Mob's making hundreds of millions of dollars off of prohibition they had the money so they lent money to to Rickard, and then mike jacobs who became a promoter uh succeeded eventually succeeded Rickard uh was a big ticket scalper and he also lent money so they built the stadium so now the mob is saying listen you know we're giving you money for the stadium and in return for that we want we want to control uh you know we're gonna have booze sales there we're gonna control the food concessions there We want money back plus interest on the stadium built and we want choice tickets rickard couldn't say no because without their money the stadium doesn't get built and he's dealt with people like this his whole life and so they have the fight the fight is successful and then dempsey doesn't fight again you know he fights a couple more times excuse me you know he fights tommy gibbons and and he fights louis ferpo in 1923 And then he doesn't fight again until he fights Gene Tunney, where he loses the title. During that time period, only the killer Madden, who was originally from Britain of Irish descent, has moved to New York. He was belonged to a group, teenage gang called the Gophers. Their main rivals were the Hudson Dusters. He ended up killing all of them. And I guess he was about 14 when he committed his first murder, got away with it, committed Another murder on a streetcar over a woman and killed a sales clerk who was in love with the same woman. No one in the streetcar was willing to testify against him. Was in a bar and um actually a friend of his was in a bar and was joking with this other gangster who hated him, same gang, the gophers, and said, Hey, you know, your girl left you for Oni and this other gangster didn't like it killed oni's friend Oni got upset had the guy go to another bar had the girl that they had in between them that they both loved sucker the guy in he got killed and oni went to prison for it uh before that been trapped by a group of hudson dusters in a bar and 11 of them against him and they all shot him and they thought he was de- would be dead, but he got to the hospital in two or three minutes. They took up five or six of the bullets, eleven of the opposite gang. In two days, five of those gang members from the Hudson Dusters were dead, gone. Within two weeks, the other six were gone too. And this guy that had set Oni up, who wanted to, who was who was a member of Oni's own gang but wanted to take it over, Oni ordered his killing and he got convicted of that and he goes to prison and all prison ever did for guys like Oni Madden or Frankie Carbro was make them smarter meaner and more sophisticated criminals Oni Madden came out of prison in 1923 and he he learned in prison to be in the background that's what you want to do You got to be in the background let the other guys do the work put layers of people in front of you to protect you so they can't trace it back to you so who who picked him up when he got out of sing sing prison in austin new york joe gould manager of jimmy braddock and several other fighters joe gould uh in the movie i was in cinderella man was played by apology Giamatti. gould was one of these front managers used by Oni madden eddie mead was another one eddie mead uh, was the manager for henry armstrong and other guys uh later on he used uh luigi serechi and walter friedman and, and broadway bill duffy to rip off primo Carnera. so only madden is now in control of boxing when he gets out of prison he works as a hired gun for dutch schultz for a short time and then tells dutch off and he starts his own successful leaking operation to give an idea of the character honey madden when he got out of prison and joe gould picked him up there was another man there named arthur beeler and as they're driving away beeler said hey uh Oney assigned your rackets when you were in prison uh to three irishmen and he names the three irishmen within three days those three men were found dead in the east river Oni was the toughest of all of them and then he says here's a beer this is the Oney selling and he drinks it spits it at the guy throws the bottle out and he said i'll be starting my own and the other guy says well you can't do that Oni doesn't like them takes a gun out bang shoots the guy in the head Oni is a complete psychopath and didn't brook opposition from anyone Stop the car dump the body keep driving didn't care didn't bother him didn't give him a second thought a friend of mine who knew him I, i mean i know a lot of people that met him when he was much older in the 60s 1960s when he was forced in 1935 because of pro violations to leave new york moved to hot springs arkansas where his full-time nurse uh at the end of his life was bill clinton's mom uh they said this was a man completely without humanity you know he could see a dog get hit by a car or somebody threaten an old lady or a girl fall off a bike and hit her head didn't bother him didn't change his day at all so Oni's taking over boxing, and he starts by controlling these various fighters. Right, he's he's saying to this fighter and to their managers, you know, because he ran boxing in New York, and he was smart. One of the things he did was he allied himself with um, uh, Charlie Lucky Luciano and and um, Arnold the Big Brain Big Brain Rothstein um Meyer Lansky Frank Costello all these guys and all their organizations and muscle he had behind him so basically when you when you wanted to fight New York you had to come visit only Madden and he would tell you what it's going to be and the only thing you could say is yes sir thank you sir that was it he would say okay this is what's going to happen you're going to fight this guy this guy and this guy you're gonna win this fight and this fight and lose that fight, but win the next fight. Um, I get 75% of everything you make, and to the manager, the same thing. I get 75% of everything you make from every fighter you manage. There's no argument. I mean, if you said, "Well, it's 75," I mean, I did all this work, and I you just take a gun out and shoot him. There was no argument. There was no discussion. And to take a gun out and shoot a guy, you only had to do it once. Then the word spreads to everyone that this is what the guy is like you don't argue with him he's a monster and he'll kill you The duke of the west side so only he's running this and he has a piece of all these different boxers and there's a great story about charlie phil rosenberg charlie phil rosenberg was fighting for the world bantamweight title he was trained by the immortal ray arcel who, who helped train angelo dundee my mentor and when Charlie Phil was getting ready Charlie Phil Rosenberg was getting ready to fight for the World Weight title uh he had a problem which was he 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 loved women wine and food and in that order so it was hard to keep him focused on training so Ray, and he was owned by Oni Madden so Ray Arcel went to Oni and said what am I going to do The champion's already beaten him twice in non-title fights. I can't, you know, this is is not worth letting the fight go forward if he's not going to make an effort. So Oni said, put him up on my apartment on Fifth Avenue, which they did, and I'll I'll have my guys keep an eye on him. And Arsale stayed there, and then they also had Charlie Phil's mother come in and cook him nice Jewish meals. And in those days, you weighed in on the day of the fight. fight was Saturday. But Arcel was smart so on Wednesday they weigh him in you know after breakfast and he's 125 pounds he's seven pounds over the limit and uh you know Oni hasn't placed his bet yet but he knows what he's going to do and Charlie from Wednesday to Saturday evening he didn't eat he didn't eat the rest of Wednesday didn't eat Thursday Friday Saturday he would take sips of water and then spit it out and come Saturday for the weigh-in Saturday morning, he's 118 pounds on the nose, but he looks terrible. He's extremely white, pallid, dehydrated. And of course, after he goes home, his mother makes him a big breakfast and he has a nice big lunch and he has a nice dinner and he can't stop drinking water. And Oni says, well, this guy's not gonna make it. So Oni puts 50 grand on the champ, just stop him within 10 and Charlie Phil goes in the ring and he wins every round beats the pants off the champion easily and so when the fight's over Arcel uh you know comes they go back to the dressing room Marcel says hands him a bag this is your shirt and pants get get out of town get in a cab here's some money leave don't come back for a month or so what just do it otherwise if only sees you you're as good as dead only a bet against his own fighter Because he didn't think, based on what he had seen, that he could win. And if he would have seen him that night, he probably would have killed him. So Charlie Phil had to go to to Long Island or Staten Island for a long time, for a month or a month and a half before he could actually come back into New York, and it had blown over. Now, one of the other uh, interesting things about owning the Killer Madden was he was the one who 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 did the blueprint. You know, he was the one who said, uh, "We take the money from the managers. We take the money from both fighters' purses." um if the fighter we're having problems with the fighter or the manager we can kill them uh if they're too well known we can just buy off the referee or the judges that's what we can do and or we can pay off people and the new york state athletic commission uh pay off the police they could pay off anyone that was his attitude you could buy anyone off why not so he said everyone had a price so we go to fights like Dempsey Dempsey has the first fight against Gene Tunney and it's in Philadelphia in the rain he loses his title The fight was supposed to be in New York but the New York State Athletic Commission for some reason grew a sense of morals and said you can't fight here Jack unless you fight the black challenger Harry Wills who who you have um ducked he was willing to fight Wills and I think Dempsey would have killed him because Wills was 6'4", and Dempsey feasted on bigger guys. That was his specialty. He knew how to get under the reach, get inside, and just pound them to the body and bring it upstairs. But they said, if you don't fight Wills first, we won't let you fight Tunney. And they signed the agreement. Jack Doc Kearns, who was his manager, who also managed the great Archie Moore and and Mickey Walker, the middleweight champ, Kearns knew how to work with the mob, get along with the mob. And, and still come out smelling like a rose, kind of. So uh, he signs the deal, but he won't fight wills. And this was, you have to remember, this was 10 years after Jack Johnson lost the title. And there was a lot of ill will over Jack Johnson. And they weren't going to give another black man a chance at the world heavyweight title that soon. So they want to the fight with Tunney. Willard has, or Rickard has signed it. Tex Rickard has signed Gene Tunney to fight Jack Dempsey. They have no location. They can't fight in New York. And what are we going to do? So Rickard doesn't know what to do. He's not going to talk to New York State Boxing Commission because they're not in charge. And he's he can't do anything about it. So he's still on the line for paying Dempsey a, a million dollars and paying Tunney. He's agreed to that. Three, 400 grand, 500 grand. He can't back out of that. That's a signed contract. So it, what does he do? He calls Oni Madden. Oni says, Okay, let me make a call. And he calls Boo Boo Hof. Max Boo Boo Hoff in Philadelphia. Hoff says, Let me call you back in 10 minutes. What are the dates you can give me? And he gives him two or three dates. Hoff calls him back and says, I booked sesquicentennial Centennial Stadium in Philly on this date. That's when the fight will happen. And Madden says, Great, thank you. They call Will uh, they call Rickard. Don't worry about it. We got a book for Philadelphia. The fight now moves to Philadelphia. That's where the fight's going to be. They're going to fight there. And of course, as I said, Rickard needed help, right? He's got to advance the money to Dempsey. He's got to advance the money to Tunney. He's got to pay for training camps. They said, well, let's take it out of Madison Square Garden funds. Well, I can't because I'm a promoter, but this fight's not being held at Madison Square Garden. You know, this has to come out of my pocket and because he was a natural born gambler he didn't have all that money on him at one time so he's got to go to odie man for the money and boo boo hoff and abner Longy Swilman, who was a mobster from new jersey around new jersey so they get the money and hoff two times first time he lends tiny money for his training camp so the interesting thing here of course is when it comes to the actual fight Hoff said listen all I did was get you a different venue it was important I'm not going to demand 80 percent. just give me five points off the gross receipts that's fine you know and this was over a two million dollar gate so he gets his money he's happy with that uh, Oni Madden gets his chunk from from Jack Doc Kearns he gets it from Billy Gibson who was tiny's manager Gibson also trained the great Benny Leonard and and uh Abner Longy's Wilman gets a piece and the fight goes in Philadelphia and of course Dempsey hasn't fought in three years and he's trained but he's not really in fight shape and he loses in the rain and he really loses he knows he's lost and you know a lot of people bet on Dempsey but people like Oni man and other gangsters always had spies excuse me in the training camps and these spies in the training camps are giving them daily updates saying yeah dempsey's physically in shape he's not fat yes he's sparring in this but his timing is way off he's rusty he tires quickly you know tony's been fighting non-stop the last three years you got to put your money on tony and they did and they won a fortune now they have a rematch they want a rematch but how are you going to have a rematch you can't really have a rematch because he beat him so decisively tony won every round and dempsey admitted that so they have to have a tune-up fight. Tune-up fight is against Jack Sharkey, the number one fighter, number one ranked fighter in the world next to Tony. And so Dempsey agrees to fight him. And Sharkey's manager was Jack Buckley, and Buckley was a mobster. This was a mob guy. And in the first six, seven rounds, Sharkey's pounding Dempsey. And Dempsey thought Dempsey thought the fight may have been fixed, because he said he had me groggy and out several times and then he just moved back and didn't continue punching me. I don't know why, maybe he was told to. So in the seventh round, Dempsey hit him low and Sharkey sure, did the thing you're not supposed to do. He stopped, he said, when, he just put his hand out like the Dempsey and he turned to the ref. And he says, hey, the guy just hit me low. And as he says that, Dempsey hits him in the jaw with the right, left hook, knocks him out. So now he's grabbing his groin, he's grabbing his jaw and he's counted out and the referee after said hey i didn't make a mistake i didn't tell him to stop fighting in his hands and he's right now everything's in place dempsey gets this shot at gene tunney fight's gonna be in chicago al capone who loves dempsey comes to meet with him and says listen i can fix the referee and the judges so you win the title back and dempsey said i appreciate the offer but i i think now after the Sharky fight and the first Tunney fight, I know how to fight Tunney now. And because of the two fights, I'm really in shape. And so I think I can do this on my own. You know, still bet on me, but I can do this on my own. And Capone says, I won't interfere. But of course, with Capone, what he says was, and what he does, he only cares about himself. So Capone did interfere. Capone had his own referee that he wanted in there, I believe Dave Miller, and to ensure that Dempsey would win. and Boo Boo Hoff wanted his own referee Dave Barry why did he want Dave Barry who ended up refereeing the fight Barry was into him for a lot of money from gambling debts also for this fight and it went into the newspapers Hoff had lent tiny and Billy Gibson almost 250 grand to run their training camp pay for everything pay for expenses because they were in debt Even though they got paid a lot for the first MC fight, they still had a lot of bills and a lot of expenses. So he loaned them the money. He had them sign a contract. Very unusual. Mobsters don't do that. They only deal in cash, can't trace cash. So that's why, you know, they have the fight. Now Dave Berry's the ref. But to get Dave Berry to ref and to get to have Capone agree to let this other ref come in, they had to pay off Capone. And so you know Boo hoff abner's willman uh, oni madden and others had to say to capone what's your price to get your referee out and get ours in and he said half a mil and so they give him 500 grand capone's happy he didn't have to kill anyone didn't have to do any work he just said sure change your referee i'll take half a million and that's what he did and so during the fight it's going the same way the same fight went tunny's winning dempsey is getting beat but in the seventh round he manages to drop Gene Tunney and Tunney was out but Dempsey wouldn't go to the neutral corner it's a battle of the long counts famous fight and people said this was the first fight where the neutral corner rule was in that's not true it came in four years earlier uh, after the Louis Angel purple fight to make boxing more palatable to the sporting public because you could stand over a guy and pound him as he's trying to get up and so the referee keeps pointing you know and says jack you got to go to the farthest neutral corner and he won't and finally he does at that point the rules for for boxing professional boxing everywhere and in the state of illinois state that once the fighter is in the neutral corner the referee picks up the count from the timekeeper timekeeper was at the count of nine so dave barry should have looked at him and said okay you know, nine. Ten, he didn't. He started one, two. By the time he gets to two, the timekeeper said, "Out, fight is over. He's out." He's still counting three, four, five. Sick, and Tony gets up, and then he manages to make it out of the round by by running. He's already been knocked out, but they're not counting it. Next round, he drops dempsey and dempsey literally is like they're touching each other he's standing right over him dave barry jumps in one two and dempsey gets up immediately but he never looked at tony and said stop go to the farthest neutral corner and roger Kahn saying this is proof that he was mobbed up it is partially but the other proof is the fact that his name was linked to bubohoff and he and he worked for bubohoff and he, he owed him a lot of money he worked regularly with gangsters now boxers and managers that were associated with the mob didn't do so out of their own uh volition they had no choice they didn't want to end up broke and and indigent with brain damage urine in the blood no money homeless that was just the way that it went with these guys so and this is a long story it's going to take quite a few episodes to do um there were two other main fighters then at that time that figures significantly into the only madden story and the meshing of the mob and boxing And one is jimmy McLaren. McLaren is one of the all-time great fighters he beat 13 world champions and 14 hall of famers from canada he was the two-time undisputed world welterweight champion And his manager was Pop Foster, great manager. And Foster grew up literally across the street from Oni Madden in England, in Leeds. So when they come to New York, you know, uh, McClendon and Foster doing great in the West Coast, they come to New York to fight there. And they pay a visit to Oni Madden. Madden's happy to see Foster. Madden says, listen, Pop's. And he says, Jimmy, no one's gonna touch you. No one's gonna bother you. You're not going to get hurt no one's going to take any money you don't have to pay any tribute to me or anyone. your fights are on the level all of them and that's what he said. now if that's true and many people think it was true, then Jimmy McClarnan is the only fighter in boxing history to ever be given that accommodation by a mobster. It never happened before never happened again but only did make them pay in another way which i'll get to in a second so pop foster had two rules for for mclaren when he fought had to be the heaviest guy had to get paid the most why asses in the seats mclaren always made the most money so mclaren is doing well in boxing he's going out during the day in new york with only madden they become good friends no one messes with him so they're getting ready to fight i think it was his first fight in new york or may have been the fight with sid terrace uh where he knocks him out one round and foster's taping his hands and two they figured it had to be out of town gangsters because ga- gangsters in town would have known that only man that runs boxing in new york you don't mess with him so they come in and they pull their guns on pop foster but foster been around since the 1870s and 80s in boxing he'd been around since the time of Tommy Ryan the great middleweight champ and back then that was a compliment you know back then to saying this guy was as good as Tommy Ryan was like saying today this guy was as good as Muhammad Ali or Joe Lewis so these guys pulled guns on him, and they said we're taking your fighter he belongs to us and he said I'm not the manager which was a lie I'm the trainer that's all I do and He said, it was the manager I don't know, but this is his number. Well, he gives him the direct line to Oni Madden. Can you imagine how stupid these guys are? They call up Oni Madden. Listen, you, they could hear his English accent. You lie me, SOB. I'm going to tell you something. We're taking over your fighter and we're going to take his money and he's going to do what we say. And if you don't agree, we're going to come kill you. And all Oni Madden says is, sure. Uh you're where are you now? We're in the dressing room. Okay, I'll be there in uh ten minutes, sign the papers over. Okay, great. And these guys think, well, that was easy enough. And then, of course, ten minutes later, door burst open. Only Madden walks in with ten guys. And the guys got their guns, still have their guns out, and they turn to look at Oni. And Oni said, I hate to disappoint you, but you're not even the first person or second or third person to point a gun at me today. What do you think you're dealing with? Who the hell do you think you are? Do you know who I am? And these guys turn into Jackie Gleason, Hamadaha, ha, 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 because I've seen his photo in the newspaper. You know, I'm only Madden. I am boxing. And they didn't call him only the killer Madden for nothing. Now, the story goes that these two guys were not only never found again, they were never even seen leaving McLaren's dressing room. Which means Madden's guys just not only killed them, but dismembered them and did whatever they did with them. They were never seen again. Only Madden didn't take that from anyone. Didn't take it from Dutch Schultz. Even the Italian gangsters were afraid of Only Madden and they backed off the way only Madden subtracted or not subtracted exacted tribute from Jimmy McLaren once McLaren was fighting Barney Ross and he lost the first fight but he genuinely lost he hadn't fought in a year and McClaren had the, the fighters main Bane which was bad hands and they have the second fight and McClaren wins and McClaren made uh, um, a strategic mistake before the third fight this is taking place during the Great Depression. Everyone is broke. These fights are giving hope to everyone, but they're making tons of money. First fight, there was like 65, 70,000 people. Second fight, been rained out for three days and still 35, 40,000 people showed up. So we get the third fight and you know they're going to grow 60, 70,000 people. The gate's going to be in the hundreds of thousands. McLaren's the golden goose and McLaren made the mistake of saying I've been at this a long time uh if I win this fight I'm done and it was a close fight I've watched a fight many times and for years I thought well McLaren won but now that I've watched it recently I don't think McLaren won I think Ross beat him that's not the point the point is only Madden did not want to lose his golden goose so McLaren loses and Madden says don't worry about it don't you worry about it we'll give you a fourth fight and you'll get even more money and meanwhile uh, madden's taking his money off the gross gate so he's still making a lot of money and off the fight and off the ancillary profits even without ripping off uh jimmy McLaren or barney ross barney ross was connected because he had done work for al capone after his father had been murdered and capone just said this isn't your line of work barney you should be doing something else this isn't for a nice boy like you so he had a lot of mob connections they all did you couldn't avoid it if you were in boxing at the time so uh mclaren fights two or three more times and madden says okay we'll get a fourth fight and mclaren quits he said nope don't need it he said you only fight for two reasons glory or money never cared about the glory don't need the money he was already a millionaire several times over and he held on to it and he he didn't fight again he three fights after the third ross fight that was it he was done what's he gonna do what's madden gonna do he can't let his cash cow walk out the door well lucky for him in comes primo carnera the saddest case in all of boxing history there's a real big uh misconception where people say you know Carnero was fine until he got to the states and they ripped all those gangsters screwed him over he was screwed over long before he got to the states French gangsters took control of him uh, uh Paul journey Leon C and they you know they signed he signed away 35 percent of himself to these guys in perpetuity so he, he was illiterate he didn't know what he was doing so they bring him to the States and he's met by Oni Madden who signs Walter Goodtime Charlie Friedman to look after him big Bill Duffy Louis Sarechi and they basically steal all of his money all of McLaren or McLaren all of Primo Carnero's money and they paid fighters off every fighter is paid off to lose occasionally they allow a fight to be on the level the fight would be on the level and if it was Carnero would lose and Carnera ended up with nothing i mean he was you know you see the movie the harder they fall with uh, humphrey bogart bogart's not playing jimmy cannon who they thought he was playing he's playing the publicist Harold conrad and rod steiger's character nick bangle is supposed to be um frankie carbo of course the problem with that is is that Carnera wasn't part of carbo's era carbo came in in the early 30s carnera belonged lock stock and barrel to oni madden and carnera has all these fights only madden's just stealing everything stealing his entire purse he stole so much money he's he signed he forced carnera to sign the other 65 percent over to him and then he sold pieces of carnera to his gangster friends and carnera owned carnera uh, ended up selling over 100 percent of himself so you literally had a situation where he was fighting getting 300 grand for a fight and even though he's getting 300 grand he comes out owing 500 grand because he's owed because he signed so much of himself away there were times where he had to stop fighting for the year because if he kept fighting he'd go more in debt even though he was supposed to be making money with each fight and he wasn't they just took all the money and this happened quite often ike williams told me at the hall of fame one time he signed for a TV fight to defend a lightweight title, and he was getting 80 grand, and he got a check for two grand. And when he complained to Blinky Palermo, Palermo put a gun in his mouth and said, take the bullet or take the check. And so he took the check. Arthur King, the great Arthur King, who was the best lightweight in the world at one time, including Ike Williams, was signed by the mob at gunpoint off of Davy Act from Toronto, his great manager, who was himself a tough guy, and, Arthur King when I spoke to him about what the mob had done to me said I can't talk about it or think about it because if I did I'd go down to the states again get a gun and kill them all so this is the effect these people had on each other so Carnera beats Jack Sharkey. Sharkey had already beaten him easily before and and he was told by the mob go easy on him so he beat him up but he went easy on him he didn't knock him out so they have a rematch when Sharkey's a champ and Sharkey gets knocked out but he doesn't get knocked out if you watch the tape Carner misses him with the right hand and then just shoves him like this with his forearm and Sharky goes, whatever, and dramatically falls to the canvas and he can't get up. And He denied forever. He denied forever that it was a fixed fight. No, it was a legit punch. But, you know, three, four months before he died, he figured I'm terminal, It doesn't matter now. And all those guys are dead. He said, yeah, they came to me, put a gun to my head and said, my guy wins in the seventh round and or Ethan, threw out, he, you know that was it and that's what happened that's how carnera got the title carnera got the title because sharky took a dive now the outlier here is max bear he has to defend against max bear and people said well why was max bear indemnified how did max bear how was he allowed to fight sharky or excuse me carnera head up because he would he was so much better than Carnera. Because the mob also had a piece of bear. There was nothing Bear could do about it. If you wanted to fight for the title, the heavyweight title was owned by Oni Madden. Oni Madden said, That's it. That's the way it goes. And and you can win, but we want this much of you. And he made a deal with Ansel Hoffman. And so Bear goes and he destroys him. And Carnegie was just used as a punching bag for the rest of his career for fighters on the way up. He went into wrestling. And Madden took money off of him. And in fact, Max Bear helped him get into wrestling, and and you know they hounded him until the day he died. Only Madden uh, had to go back for parole violations in 1932, to Sing Sing, and he came out a year later in 33. But by 35, the FBI and state police were hassling him every day. They were arresting him two, three, four times a day. What's he gonna do? I mean, everyone he deals with in boxing is a felon so he, he can't take it anymore so what he does is he moves to hot springs arkansas which he visited becomes the godfather of arkansas he still controls boxing he still gets on to it but he cedes the day-to-day operation of it to to frankie carbo and also to uh, carbo's assistant uh the numbers runner and vicious killer from philadelphia uh frank blinky palermo and carbo Carbo uh, was just an incredibly vicious man. And he, you know, uh, my friend told me that uh, Oni Madden was more vicious. Hard to believe. One story about Oni Madden, which I neglected to tell, was um, Joe Goldman is Jimmy Braddock. And Braddock, when he fought Abe Feldman, broke his hand. And so the fight was stopped. Both fighters were disqualified for not putting on a fight. Braddock tried to, but his hand was broken, his right hand. And he's an orthodox fighter. In the movie Cinderella Man that I was in, they show him being suspended by Jimmy Johnson f- from boxing. But Jimmy Johnson didn't have the power to suspend him. Only the New York State Athletic Commission did. And they didn't suspend him. What happened was Johnson just wouldn't book him into Madison Square Garden for a while. But that didn't matter to Braddock because he needed six to eight months to get his hand healed. And he did. And then Joe Gould approached. Um, jimmy the boy bandit Johnson and said listen i want to book him back in he said now nah, last time he's done to join him
1: yeah but he had a broken
0: hand and he still kept fighting now his hands healed and he wants to fight you can use him to make other guys look good no nope, i'm the boss i say no but we always book jimmy no get out well that was a stupid move because gould was the assistant to oni madden Oni madden went and spoke with Joe Gould Gould came to him and he told him what happened he goes let me get this straight Jimmy Johnson said he's the boss yes and that Jim Braddock will never fight Madison Square Garden again yes okay thank you and he just turns to his assistants and said get him you know bring him here and they you know they go into his office Madison Square Garden I just got a couple of phone calls and these mobsters just rip the phones out of the wall pick them up under the armpits you're coming with us and then they get in they said put them on the table and then literally on his desk you know undress them they rip his shirt off and they rip his like his jacket and shirt they strip him naked and you know uh, what's this madden takes out a machete and says i want you to tell me why i shouldn't carve your heart out right now and of course you know, they thought. Joe Gould later said he thought Jimmy Johnson was having a heart attack. He was screaming, "What did I do? What did I do? What did I do? What did I do? What do I do? I'll do whatever, whatever you say. What do I, who the hell are you to say that you're the boss? I'm not the boss, right? Who runs boxing? You do. I am boxing. I control boxing. Everything here in New York and across this country, and boxing happens because of me. And it happens when I say it happens, and it happens the way I say it happens." he said right now it's 7 p.m in the next 30 minutes you're going to go out you're going to make a match between jimmy braddock and another fighter i don't care who it is and you're going to announce it within the hour and it's going to come out in the late newspapers if not go home and kiss your wife goodbye and he gets up off the desk they throw him his clothes he goes and you know half hour later it's a press release from madison square garden jimmy braddock's making a comeback he's fighting corn griffin and, and he won the fight and it's in the late papers and eventually um madden even though he left he'd had enough of jimmy johnson you know he said why am i dealing with this idiot you know i'm the boss why are you arguing with me and and why why are you give me flack why are you saying this is a better fight or that's a better fight I don't care about your opinion your opinion is nothing to me you're nothing but a two-bit thief so you're done you're gone you're fired get out yeah but I I'm I'm the promoter everyone I, I said get out and he's removed and the person who moves in is Mike Jacobs and they admire Mike Jacobs pluck because Jacobs said to Madden or to Jimmy Johnson Johnson wasn't gonna let Jell-O's fight there Madison Square Garden because he was black and he wanted black, he wanted John uh, Lewis to lose on purpose because he was black. Lewis's managers were also criminals, Julian Black, John Roxborough, there were numbers runners and gamblers. But they knew how the game was played. And they hooked up with Jacobs. Jacobs didn't care about a person's skin color. He wanted to rip everyone off. So he said, I got you, you have Madison Square Garden, but I got Joe Lewis. And so he ended up selling out Yankee Stadium, the polo grounds, and only Madden saying, Well, this is great. We had a fight card in Madison Square Garden last night. 1,300 people showed up. It can hold 20,000. Joe Lewis fought in, in, in Polo Grounds, and 80,000 people showed up. So he just said, That's why he just said to Jimmy Johnson, You're done. And put the Jacobs in, issues the new era in boxing. That's when Oni Madden, because of all the flat coming down upon him, has to leave and goes to Arkansas, where he receives a monthly check every day until i think july 1st 1965 the day he died uh for all his rackets he received the monthly check from new york uh uh courtesy of frank costello because he didn't he he knew carbo and he knew uh palermo got along with him didn't trust him carbo was a specialist for murder inc he was one of the few that was on retainer he did the hard killings he also killed bugsy Siegel, and as Madden fades from public view but still has some power. Carbo and Blinky Palermo and all their underlings, all these terrible people, Heine the Mink, Walman, Champ Siegel, all these vicious, evil, vile people rise up from the muck and the primordial ooze to take what Oni Madden started and to rip fighters off to such an extent that we would never seen before where what Carvel did was I'm taking them both fighters purses I'm taking the promoter's purse I'm taking the gate receipts I'm taking the TV money and I'm betting on the fights because they're fixed so he just went and stole everything and it was only which we'll get to next week at the end at the very end in the early 60s Where he got caught on tape and was sent away for it although he still controlled it while he was in prison that's just a opening beginner's course on the history of the mob and boxing if you want more go to my substack uh, .substack leweizen.substack.com once upon a time in the prize ring my first two installments are up of the mob and boxing or boxing and the mob and uh, i have a third installment coming up soon uh, it's worth checking out you can get a monthly or weekly uh, or excuse me a monthly or a yearly subscription and uh, worth getting uh, lots of great articles there as well as those my name's Lou Eisen thanks for watching Ring talk see you again next week.